Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. It is my great pleasure to welcome onto the podcast this week debut novelist and journalist Tracy Lien. Tracy grew up in Sydney, Australia, and growing up had, in her own words, the energy of a high achieving, studious child, but with average capabilities. Certainly an experience I can empathise with. In 2018, she became a reporter for Vox Media before going on to work for the Los Angeles Times. Tracy then decided to make the leap into fiction and creative writing and joined the MFA programme at the University of Kansas. And it was during this time that her first novel, All That's Left Unsaid, was born. Set in the Vietnamese enclave of Cabramata in Sydney, the story opens with the brutal murder of a 17-year-old boy. Realising that the full details of the crime is not being uncovered by the police, the sister of the murdered boy, Key, takes it upon herself to find the witnesses and discover the truth for herself. All that's left unsaid manages to be both a compelling page turner as well as a profound exploration of racism and the Vietnamese Australian experience. Tracy, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Now, on Mostly Books Meets, we like to explore various people in the industry, whether writers such as yourself or editors or anyone else. We like to explore sort of their journey through books to where they are now and, and their relationship to reading. So yes, I hope you don't mind me including that. I did abbreviate it, but that quote from that information you sent over to us, because I I don't know, usually people are very like, oh, I was very, I was very studious and I did really well. It was just lovely to hear, honestly, someone go, oh, like I was really keen, but I didn't necessarily get the grades or whatever. Yeah, like I have read and listened to so many interviews with other novelists where they've said, I was such a bookworm as a child, or like I would escape into books. And I would yeah. think, oh man, my background feels so embarrassing compared to this. <laughs> like as a kid, I watched so much television Mm. and most of it was I'd say not nutritional in nature like there was a lot of a reality tv judge judy ricky lake I went through a spell of the bold and the beautiful uh, and even jerry springer like it was not great but when I when I reflect on this I think there are two main reasons why I sort of went down that path. The first being that my parents were refugees from Vietnam. Mm. They could read and write in Vietnamese and Chinese, but English was not a strength of theirs. And so we didn't grow up with a lot of like English language books at home. And they also worked a lot. So I just watched a lot of TV. It was sort of an unsupervised situation. Mm. But then I also know that a lot of children of refugees and immigrants, like they became avid readers. So what's my excuse? It's like, well, my... My story itch was scratched by these shows I was watching. Yeah. Was it high quality? Not exactly. But if I was eight, nine, ten, like I was not that discerning and Judge Judy was doing the trick. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of television, which I'm not proud of, but that's that's the background. <laughs> if it helps, you're not by any means on this podcast, the first person who has said that as a child, they just didn't get on with reading or didn't get into reading and much preferred TV or other forms of media to, as you say, sort of scratch that storytelling itch. 
even myself, I was, for me, it was because I was very dyslexic and I just, I associated with books with kind of being really stressed out. I, di- I didn't want to sit and read because I was like, how can this be re- relaxing for anyone? Because for me, it was like, oh no, this is, this is really stressful. I, I'd come to sort of associate it with something negative and it wasn't until later on in life that I I got into it. And I think it's good to be honest about these things because for readers coming into our shop, people sometimes worry or my, my child's sort of not getting into reading. And I, I think everyone has their own journey and we'll get there kind of eventually. It's about finding the right books or the right time. And it's different for everyone. So it is, it's nice to have that honesty because I do wonder how many authors are actually in the same situation that sort of feel like they kind of, I don't know, a bit of self-mythologizing have to kind of be like, oh, I was reading before I was speaking. I, I loved it that have to kind of yeah build this this mythology around it. Yeah, and I can really relate to your experience because you know, I have an older brother and he was more interested in fantasy. And so mm. I remember like we had the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring at home. Yep. We had a copy of Dune. And so I remember oh, yeah. being like 10 or 11 being like okay let's give books a shot and picking up dune and then being like nope um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and the feeling was like oh i must be dumb but it was a mm. feeling that mm. oh i guess th- i guess this isn't for me and of course on reflection it was silly i should not have been attempting dune at 10 there were other books that probably would have spoken to me but I think Mm. what I was exposed to was just either a little bit too challenging or it wasn't quite relatable and those Mm. early experiences really just kind of made it really hard for me and Mm. turned me off the medium for quite a while. Absolutely and of course it's about something I've personally never never gone with even something like June because I think as well it's about when you're younger it's about feeling also sort of representative books or seeing someone that you can sort of go, oh, that's me. And there's many children and it's something the publishing industry now is sort of trying to change, but it still has a long way to go. And I've spoken to other authors who have said, well, actually growing up, some of them did enjoy reading and they sort of didn't notice. And it was later on that they thought, oh, actually, these, this isn't me. Or just from the off the bat, they were thinking, well, actually, what's this got to what's this got to do with me it's so different so removed from who I am and kind of my experiences and so for you reading was something that came later then do you have a sort of a title in your mind that you think of as a book that you you picked up and you thought ah oh, actually this this reading thing could be could be for me so the first book I remember reading and really loving was the first Harry Potter and yeah I absolutely loved the Harry Potter series, like everyone else my age in my generation. And yeah, like I remember like waiting in line the day a new Harry Potter book came out and it was just so exciting. The thing with the Harry Potter series though, was that it didn't make me think, oh, I could, I could do this. Like it didn't inspire any literary ambition, right, but yes. it did, it did sort of introduce me to this idea of escape and of my own fantasy. Cause I think, yeah, I think I was like maybe 10 when I read the first one. And it was this safe space where I could imagine myself. At that age, you feel so powerless. You're starting to have a lot of feelings about Mm. a lot of things. You want to be special. Maybe you have a crush on someone. As, As you mentioned in the introduction, like I had a lot of ambition, but my abilities were quite average. And that's sort of Harry Potter, the character, right? Like He is an average student. 
Yeah. The only thing that's special about him is, spoiler alert, his mother died to protect him. Yes. He didn't even have to do anything. Yeah. And so as a kid, you could sort of like map yourself onto him and be like, oh, maybe I could be special. Yeah. Or you've got this whole cast of characters that you can map yourself onto and then you've got the different houses that you could sort of like, oh, I'm a Hufflepuff, like I, I feel seen or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so I think that was my introduction to mm. the power of fiction and how it can mean so much to people. And it was definitely mm. the first book I felt possessive of, sort of like, oh, this is mine. Like, this is yes. my experience. I don't want anyone else to like it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it feels like people, I suppose, particularly sort of younger readers as well, fall into two camps. There's kind of the ones that become almost evangelical and they want one should read that book. And then sometimes, actually, I think this applies to adults as well, but also reading a book and, I don't know, feeling, obviously, you're aware other people will be reading it. With something like Harry Potter, you can't escape that fact, but it somehow feels like you almost feel like, no, I'm the only one that has this relationship with the book. It's probably not true, but it, it feels so when they do kind of speak to you in that way, it, it feels so personal. It's almost hard to imagine, oh, well, this can't be the case for anyone else. Right, and reading is such an intimate experience, right? Mm. You're doing it on your own. Yeah. It's quiet. It's just you and the page and whatever yeah. is going on in your mind that it can be very easy to think that, oh, no, this this is just for me. Yes. Yeah, exactly. This is yeah my thing as well. So, so Harry Potter was certainly in terms of fiction was a big sort of I suppose turning point as you say that sort of first book that you feel possessive of but it sounds it sounds like from quite a young age you were also you were very focused on this idea of becoming of becoming a journalist of and had a keen interest in in journalism as well was there any sort of moments in because I would say as well what's really interesting you've said this yourself but I think you can see it in the book as well that journalism has sort of helped and been quite important with this novel and uh, I'm just interested to learn a bit more about that as well w when did journalism start speaking to you yeah when I was 13 I got a copy of Dolly magazine which I don't think exists anymore but it's sort of like teen vogue 17 yeah. it's a teenage uh, magazine for girls and I absolutely loved the experience of reading a story and learning something that couldn't be unlearned yeah so, for example, there was like an article about a 15-year-old who was like a surfer and a shark bit off her arm. And what she is still surfing and competitions. And it's like, oh, I can't unlearn that. I can't unsee that. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes it would be about a, a girl who has a certain disability and this is just how she lives her life. And it's like, oh, that's yeah. that's something, again, I can't unlearn and I'm glad to have been made aware of this. Yes. And then as I progressed to women's magazines, sometimes it would be like true crime related stories. Okay, or, yeah. I remember like one story about women with like cocaine addictions and like how they were hiding. Wow. And it was just, all, it was like the drama of it, right? Yes, it was, yeah, yeah. And, it comes back to like sort of scratching that story itch. Stories that like change the way you see the world, change the way you think about things. And I was like, oh, there is a job associated with this. Someone had to write these stories. And so from a very young age, I was like, that's what I want to be a part yeah. of. And I would flip to the masthead and you know, from month to month, you could see people's career progressions as well, how someone would start oh, off okay, as yes. an assistant. And then six months later, they would be 
you know, a feature writer. And then six yes. months after that, they were now the deputy editor. And so it gave me a framework of like, oh, this is what a career could look like. So I was just so single-minded and I became obsessed with magazines. I would walk into news agencies whenever I had some pocket money and just grab one magazine from every category. So oh, women's okay. health, fitness, cooking, architecture. One oh, time wow. I picked up a magazine called Bacon Busters, <laughs> which is a pig hunting magazine. Not for me, bought it once. And I was like, well, I don't think I'm going to write. No, but one. wow. But I was just really fascinated to see like, well, what is this industry? What kinds yes. of stories can you tell? And so I really took to journalism. I studied journalism when I was at university. And then when I graduated, I got a job as a reporter for Vox Media. This would have been in 2012, right. writing about video games and covering the video uh, game industry. Amazing. Yeah. And then I did that for a few years. And then in 20, 2013, I moved to America, still with Fox yep. Media, stayed with them for another year and then joined the LA Times as a business and technology reporter. And around that time, that's when I gave books another shot. So I had this long stretch where I was just reading every magazine under the sun and like friends recommended certain books to me. And then I was like, oh, okay, well, let's Let's give it a shot. Yes. And I think the book that finally made me give it another chance was George Saunders' Civil War Land in Bad Decline. That one just really blew me away with how funny and goofy and emotional yep. it was. And like in high school, a lot of our assigned readings were Jane Austen, Shakespeare. Yes. Things that I found so challenging and difficult to relate to. And I had it in my mind that, oh, this is what, this is what books, and then reading George Saunders, I was like, oh no, I've gotten it wrong. Like I was kicking myself, like, oh, I've been looking in the wrong place. And so I've been playing catch up ever since. Yes. Yeah. I understand that feeling of, of catching up as well. Cause yeah, again, at school, you come across this, the books that are particularly tricky to get into or, or really require a kind of a whole background of kind of reading and reference before you go oh okay yes I get what this is now or something like Shakespeare where it's usually taught off the page but I think maybe at least if you heard it spoken on stage it would kind of just at least kind of click in a bit you know a bit more but they, they can be incredibly alienating I remember for me Dickens was actually a lot like that I didn't I think people associate Dickens with but I think we were trying Bleak House or something and oh my goodness I just I just remember thinking I knew what was going on but I thought I'm not enjoying this right <laughs> you know, right it's end. like <laughs> I should be thinking that this is the bee's knees and mm. yet if I'm not enjoying it like again am I just not smart enough for it. I think there was just a lot of shame associated yes, yeah. with reading for me. And so with journalism, I I found like articles really accessible because they're written in a style so that anyone can read it and understand yes, yeah. it. And I I really value my time in journalism, even though I eventually left. I left my job at the LA Times in 2018 to go get my MFA. And it really was a dream job. I think my time at the LA Times was when I learned to write. It was, okay. when, it was when you have to write with clarity. You can't be verbose. Yeah. You need to know what your story is going into it because you need to be able to pitch it to your editor. So, right. I, so yeah. I couldn't just go in being like, well, what if I wrote about 
this company and they'd be like, what about okay. it? Yeah. What's your angle? It was about like meeting deadlines as well. Yes. You couldn't wait until you were inspired. Otherwise you'd just get fired. Yeah. But it was like, okay, your deadline's at 3 p.m. If you do not deliver, there will be a hole in the newspaper. Yes. <laughs> there were like word count restrictions. You know, you need I, to tell yes. the story in a thousand words. You can't go over, but you can't also be that much under. Yeah. You had to sort of use, be like judicious when choosing quotes. Like you right, couldn't just thing. quote people randomly. Yes. You really had to think about it. And then the other thing, you had to hook the reader. One of the things I learned as a reporter was that your reader doesn't owe you anything and they will stop at any moment. Mm. So your lead needs to really hook them. And then every section, you need to be giving them a reason to stick with it. Yes. And so I think a lot of those lessons I took and applied to writing fiction. And yeah, so it was a dream job. And then around 2017, a year into Trump's election, mm. I understood that journalism as a profession was more important than ever. Yeah. But the, the stories I was writing didn't feel important to me anymore. Because okay. I felt that every day there was another crisis. And so yes. the, whatever yeah. I wrote yesterday wasn't important anymore. There was a new thing to jump on. And there are a lot of journalists who thrive on that yes. sort of like cadence. But for me, I was just like, this This feels relentless. Yeah. And I want to be able to slow down and tell a story that is still going to be relevant a week from now. Yeah. And that led to a bit of an identity crisis for me because, again, I'd wanted to be a journalist since I was 13. Yes. And then I became a journalist and it was all I'd ever known. And so if I wasn't a journalist, then what was I? And if I couldn't introduce myself to people as, hi, I'm Tracy Leon from the LA Times, um, like who would care? Yes. And it was actually a former editor of mine. He and his wife suggested, like, have you thought of studying creative writing, like in a master's program? And I was like, no, I didn't even realize that that was a thing. Yeah. And they said, well, there are a lot of programs in America that are fully funded. So you don't have to go into debt to study creative writing. Yep. You'll give yourself two to three years to figure out what you want to do without having a gap in your resume. Because I could always say, well, I was in grad school. And then you can learn a new skill. And for me, I'd been dabbling with fiction writing just in my own time. And I was oh, like, you know, okay, that, right. that, that, could be, that could be a thing. And I didn't know I wanted to write a novel, but the idea of going back to school to learn fiction writing was really compelling to me. And the way I thought of it was, if it doesn't work out, I can go back to journalism after yes. two, three years. So I applied to a bunch of programs. The University of Kansas accepted me, quit my job, moved to Kansas and started studying fiction. And during that time, that's when I wrote my novel, All That's Left Unsaid. And that's amazing as well, that after all of those changes and coming from somewhere, because I'm right in saying, aren't I? And again, excuse my ignorance, but for those of us in the UK, the Los Angeles Times is a major publication in America up there with sort of the New York Times and these other big. So it must have felt that you'd kind of reached that goal that you've been wanting since you were quite young and then this big change. But how fantastic as well that within that course was when you, you came across this story or you came up with this story that is now, certainly for me, the listeners can't see this, but I'm holding up a proof copy I have of the book that I was sent a couple of weeks ago. It's now a physical thing. That's so exciting to have that suddenly as a, a physical thing that can be held, that can be read, popped on a shelf. 
Yeah, and it was such a an unexpected journey as well. So when I started in the MFA program, we would do workshops where we wrote short stories and then shared them with each other and people yeah. gave feedback. And a classmate of mine, about six months into the program, they said, oh, you're writing a linked short story collection, right? And I was like, what? <laughs> what, 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 are you, <laughs> what are you talking uh... about? And they said, well, you've submitted three stories so far over the course of the semester. All of them are from the point of view of these uh, young Asian Australian girls who are from this place called Cabramatta. Like this is, it's all in the same universe, right? Yes, yeah. And it had never occurred to me. But when they said that, it did click. I was like, why am I circling Mm. this, this idea or these characters or these themes? And the more I thought about it, the more I, it became clear to me that I was trying to get at, I want people to know how it feels. And I was like, okay, well, what, what is that? What do I mean by that? And it's like, well, I want people to know how it feels to grow up Asian Australian in the nineties. Yes. And so like that became the, the spine of my novel where the story could change, the narrative could change, characters could come and go. I could cut entire chapters, but no matter what, I knew I wanted to serve that spine. Yes. No matter what, this this book, this novel, this short story collection, whatever it ends up being, I want people to know how it feels. So then that was my starting point. Yeah, I was writing short stories. I did think it would be a short story collection, but then some stories oh. stood out more than others. Yes. And there was this one story I had written about a, a woman who was 22 whose brother had been murdered in Cabramatta and sort of like her struggle to find the truth. And I was like, her story is standing out a lot more mm. than all these other characters. I'm going to stick with her for a bit and I'm going to just keep writing. And that became like, that's how it ends up becoming a novel and it become, ended up following Key Tran, this character. Yeah. So, yeah. Were you developing this as part of the course or was this almost, did it get to a point where it's kind of beyond the sort of beyond the work that you, because I presume there's probably a lot of work for the course as a part of it. Had this got to a point where you were doing this kind of alongside of all that? Yeah, so for workshops, I would write other short stories yeah. un- unrelated to the novel because I, I didn't want to workshop a novel because say you bring in the first chapter, what can people really say about it? Yes, yeah. They might say, yeah, I'd keep reading. It's like, okay, that's not really going to help me as a writer. So I would write other short stories for class. And then in my own time, I would work on the novel. And this is where the discipline of journalism came in because I had never written a novel before. Mm. Longest thing I'd ever written was, I think, maybe a 5,000 word article. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was so intimidated by the process. And I sort of like did back of the napkin math of, how many words do I need in order for this to technically be a novel? (laughs) And I would walk into a bookstore and like look for the thinnest novel possible and like how many pages (laughs) is it, right? And so I I would set myself that, but I think it was roughly like 60,000 words. Like once you hit 60,000, it's no longer a novella. And I was like, okay, that's still really intimidating. That is still like, I've never written anything close to that length. So I set myself the goal of writing 300 words a day because that's like you would probably send 300 words in text messages. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Very doable. Yeah. And I was I was disciplined about it in the way that I was disciplined when I was a journalist. So I would write up to 300 words and I would stop. Even if I felt like really inspired, I would stop to save gas in the tank for the next day. 
you know, sometimes I would break the rule and just like get to the end of a sentence. So I wasn't like stopping yes, <laughs> like yeah. mid- midway through a sentence and then losing my train of thought, but I would get to the end of the sentence. And then the next day I would pick up and I would write every day and I would give myself Saturdays off. But yeah, like the process of writing 300 words every day revealed more of the story to me every time I sat down. So I'm not an outliner. I'm not someone who knows how a novel ends before I get started. Right, okay. I wish I was an outliner. Like I've heard interviews interviews with uh, Jane Harper where she has talked about like plotting everything out down to the scene and then she just Mm. writes it. And that's how she has the bestseller every year. Must be nice. <laughs> yeah, amazing. But, yeah, amazing. Right. Uh, but, but for me, I'm like, I, I have no idea until I start writing and then each day it reveals a little more and it reveals a little more and it's incredibly messy, And which is why there's a lot of redrafting and a lot of rewriting. But, yeah, I, I stuck with it. And then after two years I had a first draft insane. that I could share with my thesis advisor and then you know, she gave me a ton of feedback led to another rewrite. There were two full rewrites. Oh, wow. Um, and then I was like, okay, I think this is the best that I can possibly get it. Queried literary agents, found my agent, and then we sold the novel in my final week of my master's oh, program. amazing. And the timing was like, mm, chef's kiss. Like, yes, yeah. <laughs> couldn't have asked for a better time. Must have had, I don't know, must have had the, the well, I'm sure well-meaning and the envy of, of some of your classmates. Because what, in terms of timing, that is just spot on to receive that news then. Yeah, it was such a relief because mm. being a graduate student, you are so broke. Mm. You know? Like <laughs> I was being paid a stipend. I think it was something like $17,000 a year. Right, Yes. Um, and Kansas has a fairly like reasonable cost of living. Yeah. Still, like seventeen thousand dollars a year is very little money. Yes. And so to have that, like, oh, okay, thank goodness I've sold it. This was this was worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, yeah it, it must make it. I think when you're writing something, there's no guarantee, certainly when it's fiction, that it's necessarily going to to become anything there there are many writers published and unpublished to write something and it, it never comes to anything it, it doesn't get it doesn't get printed it doesn't get published and I think all writers are sort of aware of that as they're doing that there's always that thing at the back of their mind that that day that you're having where it's really not you're really sort of pushing through it really working hard it's not easy to think well actually I might be doing this for for nothing to come of it. I was just speaking to a couple of editors this morning as part of our podcast, and they were saying as much as the books they've published, they also think about the books that they've loved, but they haven't been able to get published or they haven't been able to put out there. That's, it's a reality of the publishing industry. So to have that news, oh, actually, this will be printed, it will be out there, it will go out into the world must be such a relief. Yeah, and I'm I'm a really optimistic person, but Mm. I like to think I'm also very realistic. So in my final year of grad school, I was on LinkedIn constantly, just planning, right? Because again, you never know, like even if you sell a novel, you don't know how big the deal is going to be. So many novelists receive critical acclaim, but they still have to work another job. And so I, I was aware that that's probably what's going to have to happen. So I sort of kept my finger on the pulse of like, what am I qualified to do? What opportunities 
are available? If I get a full-time job after graduation, how will I structure my time to make sure that I can still write? So I wasn't delusional about it, nor was I putting all my eggs in one basket, but I did remain very optimistic that I had worked hard to get lucky. And I understood that, yes, luck will hit whoever it wants to hit, but I've worked hard to get lucky and fingers crossed. But if not, I definitely had a plan for how I could pay rent and not be destitute. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. yeah. We, yeah, we all need, in the world we live in, unfortunately, we all need those plans. However much we would like to do other things or have the freedom to go, I'll do this, I'll do that. Yes. There's always the destitution always looms, (laughs) always looms. So we'll go back to all that's left and said in just a moment, just in terms, because you said things like civil war land in bad decline, suddenly it was like a lightning bolt. Oh, actually, this is what fiction can be like. I was just interested. And of course, I'm sure when you're, you're writing your own book and having that published, it takes up a lot of time. But I wonder if there's any books that you've read recently that have really spoken to you, really stood out for you. Yes, I absolutely love the novel More Than You'll Ever Know. I think I got that right. More Than You'll Ever Know by Katie Gutierrez. It came out this year. I know it's available in the UK right now. And it's a wonderful work of fiction where we follow a few characters. One is a woman who in the 80s was married to two men. One of them, she had a family with one of them in Texas, and then she married another man at the same time in Mexico City. Wow. It's about how she kept it up for like Mm. two years, and then eventually they found out about each other and one murders the other. Wow. And then present day, there is a true crime writer. She's like a blogger type person. Right who has decided, what if I can get this woman to talk to me, I could write a true crime book. And so it's sort of about the the moral dilemmas that face both these characters. Like, what are the ethics of profiting off of someone else's tragedy? Mm. And also, why would someone marry two men at the same time? Like, how do you pull that off? What inspires that? What's going through your mind that makes you think that's okay? And... It's just such a juicy mystery and the writing is beautiful and it's a page turner as well. So it's got everything that I really love in books. So yeah, I think Katie did an incredible job. It's more than you'll ever know. And that page turning aspect is interesting as well because we're talking to different writers. I mean, different writers have different kind of not aims for their book, but different things that they sort of want to explore. But a few have said that they really, they thought, well, Ultimately, I have a kind of a, a message, let's say, or sort of a higher a higher meaning to the book, but also fundamentally, I want it to grab people, to take them in. And it feels like that's something that was relevant to all that's left unsaid. And you were saying as well with, with journalism, kind of fickle readers can be, that you have to earn that attention. And that feels like that was quite important to the writing of this as well. Yeah, there's a quote from the author Viet Thanh Nguyen where he was talking about his own novel, The Sympathizer, and his process mm. for it. And he said, a lot of books that are historically or politically concerned tend to be long on mood and short on entertainment. Mm. And why Why not both? Like, yes. why, why not sort of write the novel that has the big message or the heavy themes and still have it be an entertaining read? Mm. So The Sympathizer is a spy thriller. 
Yes. It gets the themes and the ideas, like it, it gets philosophical, it gets political, it does it all. And so when I was working on All That's Left Unsaid, I, I didn't want the book to feel like homework for a reader. Yes. You know, sometimes there are books where you're like, oh, I know I should read that, but what if I just buy it and I'll get around to it. <laughs> it goes on the shelf and then, yeah, never read, yeah. Yeah, and I'm definitely someone who has done that a lot where it's like, <laughs> okay, I, I bought it, it's on the shelf, I'll get around to it. And so I, I thought of, okay, well, what what makes a book something that, like, I want to read? Yes. What are the books that I have read where I once I started, I couldn't put it down? And for me, it, it was mostly murder mysteries and thrillers. Mm. So authors like Jane Harbour, Gillian Flynn, Trent Dalton. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to write uh, a conventional murder mystery because that's not yes. really what this story is. But what can I learn from them? And so there was like a lot of sort of like being studious about well, what works in these other novels that I can just borrow qualities of it so, yes. that, so that this novel that I'm writing, which does have heavy themes, it doesn't feel like a slog it doesn't feel yes. like all right let's let's dive into 300 pages of racism and discrimination like yes. I, I didn't, I didn't yeah. want that to be the experience so yeah like I think a lot of learning from other authors on how to like mm. make something feel propulsive yes I think absolutely a common common theme with everyone I speak to is that sense of borrowing or kind of a cherry picking from the things that they have enjoyed and going actually this is this is, I can use this ingredient in my recipe and it's still mine. It's completely unique, but finding those different elements from, from different stories. And I'm, I'm going to ask, well, I think this is cruel, but I think with your experience, I think it will be, for you, it will probably be a doddle. But for me, if anyone said this to me, I'd think, oh, I wouldn't know how to do this. But you mentioned how in journalism, you have to sort of pitch your, pitch your idea. I'm just curious, if you were to basically sell your book to to our listeners what would be what would be your pitch for that and I'm sorry if I've, I've sort of put you on the spot there oh no I'm ready for this <laughs> <laughs> I love that I love that okay so it is a take on a murder mystery the book is set in the year 1996 in Cabramatta which is a Vietnamese refugee enclave in Sydney Australia the story begins when a 17 year old boy is beaten to death at a Cabramatta restaurant when his older sister Key returns home for the funeral she learns that the police are completely stumped by her brother's mm. case. About a dozen witnesses were present and they all claim to have seen nothing. So she takes it upon herself to track down each witness to find out what happened. And we get to see the story from her point of view, but also mm. through the eyes of all the witnesses who were there that night. What a great pitch. And Thank you. <laughs> you really were ready. It's very impressive just because I can tell you, I and I mean no harm to them, but I've spoken to many an author that if I said to them on the spot now, you you tell our readers right now why they should read your book, they would just absolutely crumble. I think <laughs> I think that I think that journalist journalistic background is is a great asset to have. And when you were talking about your kind of work ethic as well, that three hundred words a day, suddenly I started thinking if I did 300 words a day, maybe I could write a novel. That's that's not been something that I would I'd usually consider, but I, that makes that makes perfect sense. Anyway, sorry, I was digressing there. But honestly, I have met so many authors who I think they almost, they say it in the book. And then if they're asked to kind of just off the cuff kind of talk about it, they really struggle. So I love that. 
direct you were you were ready so I feel you're quite ready for because a big thing about being a debut novelist as well is once you're well before your book is out there of course we're recording this now a couple of months before before it's published in the UK but particularly once the book is out there's usually events talks things like that some some authors I think struggle with that a bit but you strike me as someone I think do you think you'll enjoy that aspect of kind of going out meeting potential readers talking to people? I think it will be a surreal experience because mm. the process of writing a novel, it's very isolating mm. just with my laptop. And so for the longest time, the only like people who had read drafts of my novel were my thesis advisor at the University of Kansas. And then when I sold my novel, like my agent and my editors. And so right now, a bunch of people who have received advanced copies of the book have yep. read it. And Every now and again, like I might see something on on social media where someone has tagged me or mentioned oh, yeah. or they'll mention that they really enjoyed it. And there's a part of me that doesn't know how to handle it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I know nothing is expected of, of me, but in terms of my own feelings, like I don't know how to feel about it. like on the one mm. hand, I'm like, oh, my God, that's so wonderful. But then I'm also thinking if I take all the compliments seriously, does that also mean I have to take the criticism seriously when it comes so it's just a lot of like emotional ambiguity I don't really know how to feel yes but I'm, of course but I'm just I think I'll be very grateful to to encounter people who have taken the time yes. to, to read it regardless of whether they liked it or not yeah absolutely and I, it must be strange because I feel that once a kind of a book is out there it, it's almost it almost becomes organic if that makes sense, it kind of spreads between people naturally. Someone picks it up, oh, I really enjoyed this. Or a bookseller recommends it because we get those advanced reading copies and then that person recommends it. It, it starts just kind of having its own life out there. And I think for writers, that must be a hard emotional thing to deal with. I would say from, and I'm, I'm not an author myself, so I don't take my advice too too seriously, but from what I've heard from other authors, I think absolutely take in all the positive stuff and then the negative stuff, just leave that elsewhere. Because I think <laughs> it's, I've seen other authors say that actually that's fine. People have different reactions to things. Enjoy all the, the good elements as opposed to feeling like you have to take on everything else as well. Yeah. And that's the other strange thing is that you have no control over how people interpret your book or what they mm. take away from it. Yeah. And so in the few like conversations I've had with people where they've asked what, what do you hope people will take away? I'm a little bit stumped because it's like I, mm. it could be any number of, I mean, yes. I have my own hopes, but I also don't want to get my hopes up. So there's a part of me that's like, if they are even a little bit entertained, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Like, like that, that is so challenging, right? To entertain mm. someone. Oh my goodness. Um, and so if someone can read the book and be like, what? That was okay. I think I'd be like, okay, cool. That's that's great. That's great. I'll take it. But then like if I'm to get get into sort of my deeper hopes, I think reading provides this very deep exercise in empathy. Mm. And the the best books or the best movies or TV shows can offer us new concepts mm. through which we could live our lives. So the author, Chloe Cooper-Jones, she is a philosopher and she published a memoir this year called Easy Beauty. And 
I'm going to attribute this idea to her, even though in her memoir, she attributes it to someone else. So you'll okay. have to read her memoir to figure out to where the original yeah, idea came from. But the idea is that if you want to change your actions, you have to begin by changing how you see the world. Mm. And in order to change how you see the world, you have to change your concepts. And so here's a reductive example. So my novel tackles the myth of the modern minority and mm. the racism that a lot of people experience in Australia. Yep. Now, if your concept of Australia is that it's a white country, mm. how does that affect the way you see people who are not white in Australia? You might see them as outsiders, as invaders. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're being generous, you might think of them as guests. But even a guest has to abide by certain rules, mm -hmm. right? Like there are conditions yep. to being allowed to be here. And so then how does that affect the way you treat people? How does that affect the policies you write? How does that affect who you vote for? Mm -hmm. Now, if you go and change that concept or offer someone a new concept of like, well, Australia isn't a white country. Mm -hmm. It's a nation of immigrants. And unless you're yes. Indigenous, you immigrated or you're a product of immigration. And then how does that then change the way you view the world? And so my hope is that this novel, All That's Left Unsaid, can provide people with another concept to consider. Mm. And then they can do with that, what, like, however they like, yes. uh, whether they choose to embrace it, take portions of it. Just considering it, I think, would be really nice. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, fiction, it, it can be a really transformative experience, even if that's not necessarily a sort of bolt from the blue, but kind of in increments. And all that's left unsaid will be adding to kind of Australian literature in terms of stories about Australia. And I definitely think probably for many, certainly many of our readers at Mostly Books, I wouldn't want to speak for everyone, but will be adding a story, a voice, concept, experience from Australia and from Sydney that they, they probably wouldn't have come across before. And that just that on its own will be, it, it shifts. It, as you were saying, it kind of shifts opinion. It changes people's ideas of, of areas that they think they know or that, that they think they have this kind of solid idea of. But actually fiction, the wonderful thing about it changes that all the time. And I think that's so important. And it must be, yes, must be exciting to have, to be a part of that now. Yeah, and I also think for a lot of readers, perhaps in the UK and the US, reading a story that's happening in Australia might give them some distance to sort of comfortably mm. reflect on their own lives. Mm. Because I think sometimes when you're reading about something that's happening in your own backyard, there's a tendency to want to look away because mm. it's too close to home, it's too hard, it's too confrontational. Yep. But it's like, oh, if we sort of look at things from a slight distance, like it's really hard to read the label from inside the jar. Yes. So to observe something that's happening at a distance, I think can also offer people an opportunity to, for reflection. Yes, absolutely. People can be very stubborn. I think if they feel like their mind's being, if someone's trying to change their mind, you know, they'll sort of resist. But as you said, if there's that kind of safe distance, suddenly it's been changed and they're kind of maybe only aware of it kind of once that's once that's happened. So it's, yeah, again, the great sort of power of fiction. I think fiction can do that in a way that sometimes not necessarily, not all the time, but nonfiction, you know, can't because kind of nonfiction from the get go kind of sort of gives you an idea of what it's what it's trying to achieve. But fiction sort of gets it in. Creeps up on you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's and that's the joy of it. I've realized, unfortunately, that that's 
that's us done in terms of time. But I want to thank you so much for joining us here at Mostly Books Meets. So All That's Left Unsaid comes out on the 15th of September. And this, for our listeners, they will be listening to this in September. So it will be out now or soon. So it will be available from all good bookshops in the UK. And it will be available from Mostly Books in shop and on our website as well. It's a brilliant book. And I think many of our regulars here at the shop will will absolutely love it because it's got really kind of everything you want from the book. It's got, as you said, that entertainment factor. You could just read it and just kind of enjoy it for this kind of brilliant, propulsive story. But it's also got a lot of heart to it as well. And there's so many other things sort of happening in between the lines. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for putting it out there in the world. And thank you once again for joining us on Mostly Books Needs. Thank you so much for having me. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because it helps people find us. 